Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at UVA and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that U.S. foreign and national security policy is the shield of our democratic republic. As he said, for want of a settled foreign policy, we shall act not upon reflection and choice, but under the impulse of accidents and the impact of force. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing just fine, uh, Eric, and looking forward to our conversation with a good mutual friend of ours, Fiona Hill. And that brings us to our guest. Our guest is our former colleague in government and our friend Fiona Hill. Uh, she's known to many of you for her star turn as an impeachment witness, but she's also a distinguished expert on uh, Russia, author of an important biography of Vladimir Putin, and was the senior director for uh, Europe. Uh, in the Trump National Security Council for two crucial years. And she has written a fantastic memoir, uh, There's Nothing for You Here, by uh, published by Mariner Books, which is a HarperCollins imprint. And it recounts Fiona's life and story uh, in a way that is really, in my experience, unique among Washington memoirs. Uh, we were kidding as we were uh, talking in the green room before we came on that the normal Washington memoir is one that everybody goes to the bookstore and looks to see if they can find their name in the index. I doubt Many people will be doing that with Fiona's book. And it is usually dedicated to the proposition that if only people had listened to what I said, everything would have turned out better. But Fiona, given her background as a, a historian and a social scientist, has really done something totally different. She's used her experience growing up in uh, an economically devastated part of the United Kingdom and her expertise on Russia and the collapse of the Soviet Union and her time as an American when she uh, emigrated here to draw some fascinating comparisons. And Fiona, I just would like to kick it over to you and have you tell us in your own words a little bit about how you came to these insights uh, about what drives populism in uh, countries like Russia today, in the United Kingdom, the Brexit phenomenon, and then, of course, uh, Trumpism here in the United States. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me on, Eric and Elliot. It's just a real pleasure to be with you here today. I wish we could be there in person, actually. So I haven't seen either of you um, in the flesh, so to speak, for a very long time. Um, anyway, but this is a great opportunity to to have a chat as well as um, uh, hopefully have an interesting conversation for everybody else to listen to as well. Um, you know, really, the whole motivation for writing this book, um, it actually, in, in many respects, came out of that star turn that you referred to, um, which I wasn't expecting to be anything of the sort, of being a fact witness at the um, first impeachment trial of President Trump. And as I was sort of sitting there in the midst of everything that was going on, you know, obviously that does give you some time for reflection and kind of looking back. And I realised that just through my own life, my own experience, my own personal observation, I could trace a path from where I started off to where I'd ended up, not just because I was that person who <laughs> started off in the northeast of England and ended up at the witness table in, in Congress in um, the public setting in November of 2019, you know, two years ago uh, this year. But also because my whole life span uh, had uh, basically coincided with all of the events that had gotten us to that point as well. You know, I was born in 1965, right in the middle of the Cold War, not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know. So basically when we, we really move into that whole period of the nuclear standoff, I uh, 
as I mentioned in the book, my whole uh, region uh, in the north of England, but the UK overall, was going through wrenching industrial change at that time, economic and social change and cultural change. It was kind of a period of massive upheaval. There were uh, uh, different uh, innovations and things like the educational system, which actually helped me uh, propel forward. But, you know, I, I came out of this family of generations of coal miners on my father's side, uh, you know, people who had never gone on to anything uh, approximating higher education, all been trained on the job. Their lives had all been upended with all the mines closing down. And, you know, it's the coincidence of the Cold War, the peak of the Cold War, and this socioeconomic dislocation that shapes my entire childhood, teenage years, and then going off into college. Because I decided to study Russian against the backdrop of the Euro missile crisis, something that um, both you, Eric, and Elliot will you know, remember yourselves from a slightly different vantage point. The stationing of SS-20 and Pershing missiles on the respective sides of the Iron Curtain by the Soviet Union and the United States, and the reaction of Europe, uh, for a whole 10-year period from the late 1970s to the late 1980s of thinking that we were going to be ground zero for an exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States. And both the United States and the Soviet Union became equally unpopular in many political circles in uh, in Europe because of this idea that uh, the rest of us were just sort of in the way of a, of, of a major uh, nuclear encounter. And so, you know, I start to um, study uh, Russian in 1984, uh, right at the end of the war scare, I ended up getting a scholarship to Harvard in 1987, uh, sorry, not a scholarship to Harvard, a scholarship to Russia in 1987, just as Gorbachev and Reagan signed the INF, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, ending that whole period of the Euro missile crisis. And while I'm there, it's the Gorbachev-Reagan summit, the, the peak um, and I mean, both of you will remember that very vividly again from your own vantage points, the sort of peak of Cold War symmetry, which sets the US and Soviet relationship on a different footing, but just the Soviet Union is about to fall apart. And it's while I'm there, I hear about scholarships in the United States. I get a scholarship to Harvard. I arrive in 1989, just as the Cold Winds and the Berlin Wall comes down. At every point, I don't know whether I'm, a, uh, it's like being Forrest Gump, <laughs> you know, kind of from the movie that I'm, you know, in the right place at the right time and not even really being quite aware of what's happening. That whole famous quip about life being like a box of chocolates. But it's just that every time there's something really dramatic happening. And I found myself even early on in my life moving in and out and trying to understand all of this. And, you know, I start to tailor my own studies to explaining what I'm seeing around me. So it's kind of like personal experience tied to empiricism about, you know, kind of an analysis. How do I explain what I'm experiencing, what I'm seeing unfolding behind me, both on my domestic front in the United Kingdom and then in this larger geopolitical context? And when I start to uh, eventually uh, go on my career path, um, and studying um, Russia, which is now no longer the Soviet Union, and that post-Soviet context of the 1990s, that's when I'm launching really my career as an analyst and an academic, I get drawn towards all of uh, this post-industrial decline in Russia, because you can't avoid it. The 1990s in Russia, when I go over there, you know, and I'm working as an academic and as an analyst, everyone is in the same predicament as I'd experienced as a kid, in the 1970s and 1980s in the north of England. And it's just inescapable because if you're st starting from that vantage point, you see how economic collapse starts to drive all kinds of political developments. And then there's the larger international context, from by, uh, context by then sitting in the United States. So I feel that by the time I get to the um, testimony, because I've been paying close attention, not just to my own personal experience, but what's been happening around me, 
that there's a larger story that I can tell from a rather unique vantage point of where I started. You know, so how do we all get from here to there? And I decide to use my own personal story as a, as a chronological vehicle for explaining where we got from it, how we got from it to be. So, Fiona, let me ask this. It is truly a wonderful memoir. It's beautifully written, among other things. Uh, It's this fascinating combination of a very interesting personal story, but much larger political story. I think uh, readers, particularly the kinds of people who are listening to this podcast, will be uh, surprised by a number of things. One of them is that you see parallels between the the north of England of your youth, uh, which is really kind of shocked by the collapse really of the coal industry, which, as you say, your uh, your family had been in for a uh, long time and everything that flowed from that. Russia after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the contemporary United States. And I think a lot of people will say, well, well, hang on, these are very, very different. The UK had been in a long-standing industrial decline for some time. It's also post-imperial. The collapse of the Soviet Union is obviously a titanic event. Uh, yes, the United States has had some difficult economic moments, but it not not nearly like that. And yet, you know, you I think make a very strong case that there are important parallels here that we can learn from. I was wondering if you could say a bit about that. Yeah, because it all depends on where you are, right? I mean, that's one of the classic things that we look at in political science and also in history. It's a sort of the vantage point of the view, the viewer and, you know, kind of where you're collecting your data sets from. So I start off in uh, uh, an old, decaying um, industrial uh, environment. You're absolutely right. Um, there's been the kind of collapse of the coal industry uh, or lots of strains and stresses and, and mass manufacturing in the United Kingdom for uh, for decades by the time I come along. But it really accelerates and comes to a peak in the 1980s, uh, which is the period of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And it's really that kind of time frame that becomes, uh, for me, uh, the kicker, you know, the, the, the pivotal time. And you also have to remember that in the United Kingdom, not just as a post-imperial decline, which of course Russia goes through as well, um, you have um, the privatisation, mass privatisation of industry. Because most people kind of forget that the commanding heights, the heavy industry in the United Kingdom was nationalised after World War II. It was private up until that point, completely private. But the devastation of World War II to the UK economy, even though there wasn't the same destruction that you saw elsewhere across Europe, but it was such having been... Uh, cut off from uh, international commerce and trade for a good five-year period, the devastation to the economy was such that the government had to step in. So shipyards, coal mines, steelworks, railways, the electrical grid, everything was privatised. And then, you know, in the period when Margaret Thatcher comes in, after just, you know, the, those industries being essentially sort of run into the ground and, you know, kind of basically ripped apart by industrial action and, you know, kind of inefficiency and all kinds of problems, Margaret Thatcher decides to privatise it all, all at once. This is the same thing that happens in the post-Soviet Russia of the 1990s when I'm actually there as a young analyst, you know, and also a PhD student doing my research and observing all of this. Of course, in the Soviet Union, everything was nationalised. It was all one big, you know, state-planned economy. But so was the northeast of England in many respects and all of the other places that had heavy industry that was dominated by by the state. You know, it's arguable, you know, kind of the British industry was more efficient, but, you know, the Soviet system, the central planning had broken down. And in the 1990s, under the influence of a lot of American um, economists and uh, other academics, we had the period of shock therapy in which uh, there was mass privatisation of the same 
major assets of heavy industry, the commanding heights of uh, the of the uh, Russian economy, and it plunges in the same way people into uh, unemployment or effective unemployment. I mean, in many cases, they're still on the books of the major enterprises that they belong to, technically, but they're not getting paid, and wages and pensions are in massive arrears. And I see the same kind of wrenching dislocation and poverty on the streets of Moscow and all the way around uh, the Russian Federation when I travelled there that I'd seen back at home. Now, the, the link to the United States is, again, it depends on where you end up, first of all. So, of course, I end up at Harvard in graduate school, but Harvard is right in the middle of Boston, that in the 1980s, as many of, as you will recall as well, was having a hard time. So Massachusetts, the old-style industries, they were private, of course, but they were no longer as competitive as they had been. And you were having the mass closures of auto manufacturers, old textile mills, you know, further around, meatpacking plants, brickworks. While I was there in um, in Cambridge, Mass, in all of the suburbs, including in East Cambridge, things were closing down. All the factories were gone. They were all boarded up. And, you know, people were in the process of making a transition to the next part of the economy, but it was a wrenching period as well. And I... Um, Ended up dating and then marrying um, you know, my, my current husband, who um, I'm still my husband, my old husband as well. I was like current husband, <laughs> my, my husband <laughs> for all this time. His family from the Midwest, you know, from Illinois and then outside in the rural areas. And I start to travel and see the same thing. Everything just looks like a reflection, maybe because you know I'm highly attuned to this, of the of the places that I'd grown up in and that I'd seen elsewhere in Russia. And I'm struck by that because I don't vault in to you know kind of the upper echelons of American society, even though I'm a graduate student at Harvard, and I start to see that there are parts of the United States that aren't faring well either, and those same places that I first visit are still in extremis. You know, my husband's family still living around in the Midwest, in Wisconsin and Nebraska and Iowa and Illinois and places that have lost the mainstays of their economy and that they haven't really bounced back into, um, you know, more innovative information, uh, you know, knowledge economy either. Unlike, of course, you know, the, the area around Cambridge Mass now that, like um, many other places, become a hub for new technology, uh, biotech, you know, you can't name it. But other places have still been left behind. If, if I could, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to uh, Eric. I think, you know, one of the points that you make subtly but effectively is you know, the United States is used to think of itself as a classless society. And of course, that's not true. And I think many of us have become aware that even you know people like Eric and myself have been beneficiaries of elite institutions, realize there's something that's now kind of problematic, that uh, a kind of upward mobility, which used to exist, say, when you had a, you know, Actually, it existed in places like Harvard, which was taking in large numbers of immigrant kids in the earlier part of the 20th century. It's now also become a kind of a, a self-replicating elite, kind of like the one that you encountered when you uh, went for a, what sounds like an acutely unpleasant interview at uh, at Oxford. But, right. uh, I have more questions for the witness, uh, but, <laughs> but Eric, yeah, I- over to you. I, well, you know, we could do the whole show just on Fiona's fascinating insights from the vantage point that she's described. But I, I do want to get into a little bit of her expertise as a, a Russia hand and, and her time in the Trump administration. I, I was uh, amused to see in the book, Fiona, you and I overlapped at the Moscow summit. I was actually at the embassy, uh, U.S. embassy at the time while you were a graduate student and, and stringing for, um, I guess it was NBC. NBC, yes. And... 
I had my own pratfalls and mishaps. I was George Shultz's control officer. I've written about this for the Reagan Institute, by the way, because they asked me to write a, a short essay on Reagan's Moscow State University speech, which you talk about. Uh, in yeah, your book, I was there the, too. You, you know, we were probably sitting next next to each other or in the same room, not even aware, right? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I had managed to lose Schultz in St. Catherine's Hall in the Kremlin, which he I'd never have. been in before, <laughs> which for a control officer, as you know, is like a cardinal sin. And anyway, I won't regale you with that story. But I, I, you talked about the Moscow summit being the sort of acme of, of uh, symmetry. You got to perhaps sit through one of the low points of, of symmetry, which you talk about in the book, the Helsinki summit, which, which you say that you briefly considered you were so mortified by the press conference that uh, President uh, Putin and President Trump were having that you briefly considered feigning a seizure just to bring it all to an end. Can you tell us a little bit about that press conference? And and in particular, I think what will be very interesting for listeners is there's been a lot of discussion about uh, Donald Trump not having note takers in the room, relying on interpreters, grabbing note note takers uh, or interpreters' notes, and therefore something you know really terrible must have gone on in those uh, bilateral meetings with Putin. You have, a, I think, an interesting vantage point to talk about that uh, based on what you describe in the book. Yeah, well, the really terrible thing that happened was the press conference. I mean, it was, you know, kind of everything else paled in, in comparison to that. And yes, indeed, I, I started to think of drastic measures about how I could bring it to an end. But I, I feared, you know, getting back into the, um, you know, your, your discussions before about pratfalls that I would just make things infinitely worse. All I could do was just, you know, add to the national and uh, personal, you know, collective humiliation that... Uh, that was going on there. But, you know, there's actually, in a way, a direct link from that Moscow summit of 1988 that you and I, you know, obviously they're together, not realising it at the time, uh, to Helsinki in um, 2018. Because Trump was kind of obsessed with wrapping up the unfinished business of arms control and nuclear symmetry from the 1980s. And again, most I, people seem to have a hard time getting their heads around that. I, I mean, I described in the book that he was a 1980s man and the whole way that he thought uh, President Trump. And I mean, I recognised him right away you know, for being such because that's, of course, the, my uh, period of great political awakening too. I was a lot younger than him. But my real political consciousness comes about in the 1980s. It's the war scare that I mentioned before, the SS-20 Euro missile crisis, which he seems to have recalled also. But it's Thatcher and Reagan you know, and the way that they dominated domestic politics, my life obviously was shaped by that, uh, and also international affairs together, along with um, Gorbachev when he comes into office in um, you know 1985. And in Helsinki, Trump thought that he was recreating one of the old-style, high-level nuclear summits of the past, like Moscow or like Reykjavik. Uh, previously in Helsinki, of course, it was H.W. Bush rather than, you know, Reagan or Geneva or all of those, you know, friendly, exotic locales that the great leaders met together. And he really thought that um, if he sat down with uh, with Putin, that, you know, he could kind of gaze into his eyes and it wouldn't be like George Bush, W. Bush at um, you know, Slovenia, where he kind of gauged into his eyes and saw his soul, but he would just charm him. This would be um, he, Donald Trump, finally achieving what Reagan had not, you know, back in the day and um, getting this huge, great, all-encompassing, once-and-for-all arms control agreement. I think, you know, secretly, he was a, a nuclear zero guy and he'd sort of bought into the idea that he was the secret source and this is all that anybody ever needed. 
And so he was kind of focused on just having this wonderful relationship with Putin. He thought that everyone would, um, you know, basically praise him for what had happened behind the scenes. The um, the Finns who were hosting it and the Finnish presidency had, you know, for the occasion, just to sort of set the tone, set the mood with mood music, you know, essentially had big screens all over flashing up previous summits, especially obviously Gorbachev and H.W. Bush in Helsinki, but, you know, other summits as well on the screen so that, you know, Trump and others would see it. But of course, that wasn't happened at all. I mean, the, uh, Trump um, was not prepared. He, he he refused to go through all of his briefings. He was always wanting to wing it and just thinking that all he, he could do was just, you know, talk to Putin and charm him. Putin tries to pull a fast one because, of course, all of the noise of 2016, the interference of the election is swirling around. And just before we'd got to Helsinki, the FBI had indicted a series of GRU, Russian military intelligence officers, for uh, their escapades in 2016. So Putin, you know, tries behind the scenes with with Trump to suggest that, well, if the FBI would like to interview these GRU, these military intelligence agents, well, yeah, we could do that. We have this mutual legal assistance treaty, he told Trump, who, of course, was clueless. Our interpreter, however, was not and was on the ball on this one. And, um, well, then perhaps, because it was mutual, um, the Russia could also interview some Americans who had been, you know, doing some slightly nefarious things. Didn't really say who these Americans would be, although he did throw out the name of Bill Browder, uh, the um, Anglo-American, now a British citizen businessman, um, who had been involved uh, in business for in Russia for decades, and whose business partner Sergei Magnitsky had been killed through, you know, willful, brutal neglect in the prison system after being arrested, and these guys, you know, getting dispossessed of their assets and. Bill Browder had been instrumental in passing a bill through Congress, the Magnitsky Act. And of course, Trump was completely unaware of all of this. So there was already that element before we got off to the races of the press conference. But, you know, Trump um, really thought that he had a fantastic meeting. So he was at the press conference glowing with pride that he's had this great meeting with um, Putin, that there was a, a, a pretty small, but, you know, still, in his view, successful agreement to move forward with arms control discussions, some other agreement um, agreements and meetings with the national security staffs. There'd been this thing he hadn't caught quite on, but Putin was offering, but he thought it was fantastically interesting, a great offer <laughs> to interview, for the FBI to interview these uh, Russian military um, uh, um, intelligence officers, missed the other bit completely. And then he was just thrown for a loop when right away, as could have been expected, the Western press wanted to know what had happened behind closed doors. Was he colluding with with uh, with Putin? What did he say to Putin about the intervention in 2016? And Trump did not want to answer any of those questions. He didn't want to be shown up in front of Putin. He was stinging from the fact that he wasn't getting praise for, you know, talking about nuclear weapons. And he just wanted to do everything to sort of avoid the whole issue. Hence, we got into that absolute nightmare of him utterly embarrassing himself by trying to turn everything around and, you know, dismiss everything in full view of the rest of the world. I mean, it was, uh, as I just said, it was just it had a long tail to it, but it was um, it was the press conference that was the real disaster there. It's interesting because I was in Helsinki in December of that year, so several months after the summit, and yet all my Finnish friends, including President Ninista, who you write about uh, quite a bit, actually, in your book, who I think is a very astute observer of Absolutely. Putin yeah. and of, of Russia, 
all of them, I think, were still sort of shocked by Trump's agreement with Putin that, you know, there was no reason why one would expect Russia to have intervened in the election, notwithstanding the 17 intelligence agencies uh, who had, and, you know, the your successor as NIO, et cetera, who had told him, told him otherwise. Uh, Elliot, uh, let me throw it back to, to you. Well, I, I, I want to just follow up on that because you, you know, you portray Trump. There's some ways in which he seemed comes across as buffoonish, naive, ill-informed, foolish. And then you also portray him in some ways as sinister. And I think you know, particularly as the, uh, um, the book comes to an end, and of course, you know, you were out of government well before the January 6th insurrection, but that's that's there too. I mean, there is clearly a dark and sinister side. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, I mean, I, I vividly remember you wrestled with the decision to go in and work on the NSC for this, uh, for this man. And I was wondering if you could reflect on that decision. And since, alas, I think there's a, at least a chance that he could come back, you know, what's, what wisdom do you have to share with other people who might find themselves in the position of being asked to serve in close proximity to Donald Trump? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, as as you know, um, at least I did talk to you um, at length about this and to you know many others um, when I was trying to you know decide um, what to do. I mean, I was very much driven by the imperative, really, not just the desire, but the imperative to do something on the national security front after what the Russians had done in terms of intervening in 2016. Um, I mean, Eric and I both served um, together at the end of the Bush administration, and I stayed on for a year into the Obama administration when I was NIO. And I then you know, spent the subsequent years after that doing more and more research on Vladimir Putin, the intelligence services, and you know, writing a book about Putin with my Brookings colleague, Cliff Gaddy. And I, you know, even though I didn't have access to classified information at the time, I you know, had a pretty good view of what was going on. And, you know, when by, uh, again, another strange set of uh, circumstances and coincidence, I got asked if I would um, uh, take the NSC job. I mean, I would just I would say that, you know, more than anything else, I felt I had to. I felt I was duty bound. I mean, what would I be doing all this time with all this work, if not to step up? Um, and on this occasion, I really felt like our house was on fire. I mean, I could see that we had certain vulnerabilities and the Russians had got, uh, you know, not just the opportunity to put fuel on everything and you know, accelerated even further, but it penetrated much uh, further into our, our political system than any other point previously because of the nature of um, social media, the partisan, you know, and uh, nature of our political system now. I mean, the way that we've you know, got ourselves so divided and polarization within society and on so many uh, different fronts. And I've, I felt, um, you know, that I had to, uh, even though I, I really listened long and hard to you and to others. And I, I took those messages with me. I thought about them every single day, honestly. And I gave myself a time frame. Partly Martin Indyk, another of our colleagues who um, you know, was at Brookings at the time, who had uh, stepped into the breach on the Israeli-Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, you could, we call it a peace process, but we never really kind of get there, do we? But anyway, the negotiations. Martin, when he'd gone back to this uh, issue um, you know, relatively recently, he'd given it a 6% chance of success, which is pretty low, but he thought it was just worth you know, attempting it for 6% when he went back to the, um, be the envoy. But he'd said to me very clearly, he said, look, I think you should do this, but you have to bear in mind 
that you should only keep on doing if you're part of a solution. Once you're part of a problem, you've got to get out of there. And I kind of figured that two years was a decent enough time frame. But I figured out that, you know, around the two-year mark, the political campaign would be stepping up again for the next election. I completely and utterly miss, um, as George Bush would have said, misunderestimated that one <laughs> because the timing, it was a permanent campaign, essentially. And, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out how this was all sort of playing out. So I really probably didn't leave soon enough. But at the same time, I really felt that um, there were things that I could get done along with other principals in the mix, cabinet members and people around me, you know, my level across the government, especially when it came to dealing with the Russians and trying to get them out of our political system. The problem, of course, becomes Donald Trump in our political system. And this is where I'm really conflicted about going forward if you know this was me again and it was a Trump 2024, because I would always normally say everyone should step up and serve their country, particularly if you see something that you can do alongside others, because you're never going to be able to do it all on your own. No one can individually you know, really make that much of an impact. But if you know Trump is back again, I've said this many times pump, uh, publicly, we're really in big trouble. Because, you know, I came out of that administration worried about us. You know, I've started speaking out more and more, especially since finishing the book, because I wanted to explain myself uh, first. But now I think we really are in that dire situation that Elliot, you and, you know, you also, Eric, um, you know, kind of warned about early on. Because a lot of the fail-safes of the system have been eroded away. And we've seen the, you know, the corrosive effect on the guardrails and just the willfulness that's been involved in um, trying to sort of dismantle all the checks and balances of the system, not just by Trump, but by people around him. This is not ideological. This is not partisan. You basically have a group of people around President Trump who were willing to manipulate, you know, a kind of a larger base of voters for their own personal private gain. It's got nothing to do with national security and even domestic politics, but it's all about them and their power and their ability to exert influence. There's no discernible ideology. I mean, there may be a few issues that maybe we and others would agree with, but at the, uh, they're pushing forward at the vast expense of the perversion of our entire political system. So, so just if I could ask just one quick follow-up. So if the next Fiona Hill came to you and asked your advice, what, what advice would you give? Well, if they were going into the position that um, I went in before, I would say no, because there's really nothing that they can uh, really do there. We do have to then sort of worry across the government, though, about all the people who are detailed there. And this is their full personal, professional lives. Because if you look back, you know, to my area of expertise into Russia, after the Russian empire collapsed, uh, well, it wasn't really collapsed, of course, because it was the Russian Revolution, although it was imploding as a result of uh, World War One. the... Um, all of the imperial bureaucracy pretty much went on strike when the Bolsheviks took over and then left. And as a result of that, the um, Bolsheviks created uh, the um, you know, emergency committee, which led on, from there to the reign of terror. And they were you know, trying to force people back into service. And I, I really do see some parallels there. You know, what happens if our you know, kind of government uh, you know, officials feel like they have to resign en masse? I mean, I would, uh, you know, really hope that the uh, detailees, you know, who would go into a position, the professional um, uh, members of our government would try to would try to stay in place and, you know, again, try to act as a fill-safe. But I think as a semi-political appointee, as somebody coming in from the outside, there's, you know, very little uh, that we'd be able to do in that um, 
scenario of Trump coming back in 2024, because you certainly would not be in the company of like-minded people who have taken an oath to the Constitution and are serving the country. Because now Trump is, perhaps from his experience of people like me and others who were serving the country, upholding the oath to the Constitution, he wants to have people who are purely enthralled to him and paying lip service, not just lip service, but actually taking loyalty tests to him. So somebody like a General Mattis, a Rex Tillerson, an HR McMaster, you know, John McMaster, you know, General Kelly, you know, they, they, none of them would be anywhere in, in, in a picture in a, in, a, in a next iteration of Trump. I want to, Fiona, uh, stay on this theme a little bit about the impact that President Trump has upon, on those around him. In the book, you talk about uh, first KT McFarland, the deputy national security advisor, reaching out to you, and then Mike Flynn, someone you and I both know. I mean, uh, we, you and I in 2008 testified with him before the Senate Armed Services Committee about Russia's uh, intervention in, in Georgia. He, um, as you point out in the book, at that point was the J2, the head of intelligence for the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, I didn't know him that well. He'd been working for Stan McChrystal out in Balad. And my first impression, honestly, was this was someone who was a little tightly wound and seemed to know a whole lot about Al-Qaeda, but not that much about the subjects you and I were testifying on, but a, a serious professional. It's since then, not only did he have the distinction, I guess, uh, dubious perhaps, of being the shortest tenured national security advisor lasting only a month before his ex-party communications with Ambassador Sergei Kislyak became public and, and uh, forced him into a, an early retirement, but he's become an advocate of the QAnon conspiracy theory. He's called for uh, martial law to overturn the election. He speculated uh, publicly about a coup in the United States after the coup in Myanmar. What do you think, uh, how do you explain this? I mean, I, I myself have trouble uh, explaining it. But, you know, was there always this kind of crazy in there? Or did Trump bring it out? Or is there some other explanation? I don't really have a good explanation at all either. I mean, like you, you know, I've worked with him very closely in that setting. Um, I always found him uh, a great colleague, honestly. Um, you know, somebody, you know, who could talk to about all of these issues and, um, you know, somebody who was pretty dedicated to the work that he was doing. I had totally lost track of him after he'd been at the Defence Intelligence Agency. I, I didn't really have any contact with him whatsoever until, you know, kind of fast forward. Um, Katie McFarland and he, you know, decided to, um, you know, reach out and offer me this job. And, and I never actually met with him in person either. It was just a very brief phone call with him. I had a much longer meeting with Keith Kellogg, um, the other um, former general who was the at that point the chief of staff for the National Security Council. And uh, obviously with uh, Katie, who I'd got to know both from her Fox News program and uh, from uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and various other settings. And I, I have to say, I was just scratching my head the whole time. Uh, at first, I actually thought he might have gone deep undercover, you know, trying to, you know, kind of root out what was kind of going on here. And then I thought, well, no, that, that must be completely wrong um, because it seemed very genuine. Um, and I, I still don't have a very satisfying explanation. All I can say is that I saw many, many times, because there were many people that I knew from different contexts who ended up in the Trump administration. And, you know, I can't imagine what it was like on the campaign. I have, you know, no insight really into it, where President Trump jumps over the threshold and everybody else jumps over with him. And, you know, kind of there was so much of a swirl of conspiracy theories, uh, so much of a sort of a swirl of, um, well, it's just lies and... Uh, 
falsifications. I think it's just it became a no-holds-barred, um, everything-is-permissible environment. And I think, you know, some people have a hard time dealing with that. Uh, and and then there's, you know, when people lose their moorings. I saw this growing up again in the northeast of England, okay? I mean, when people lost their jobs, lost the uh, the certainty of the community that they were part of, they were lost too. My impression of General Flynn was he was a lost soul. Maybe it was, you know, when he, he left the army, you know, he, I mean, the military, you know, the out of the uh, the environment that he knew really well and that he was obviously superb within. And he gets into a different, more political place and his moorings have gone. You know, people, have, their bearings are all lost. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel like that because I've always actually been an outsider, multiple different levels, being a woman, being from where I am. You know, I've always been just much more being very careful about observation, just remembering who I am at all times, you know, slap around the head, you know, kind of, you know, wake up, you know, remember who you are, where you are. As I said, a lot of the time I felt like I was in Alice in Wonderland and I was really glad that I loved that book as a kid because I think it really prepared me extraordinarily well remembering not to eat the mushroom, not to drink the little vial of, <laughs> of um, the medicine. Be very careful of the Cheshire Cat. Fiona, that's such, such an interesting observation because I, I know that the three of us uh, have had the experience over the last uh, five or six years of having people who we thought we sort of knew, maybe not as intimate friends, but we were well acquainted with, go to places that we never would have imagined. And I, I found myself wondering, how did that happen to somebody who I thought I knew? And Eric, I'm sure you've had that that experience as well. And I think that's not a bad explanation of it, that they once they're kind of displaced from things that had uh, moored them to reality and to a certain sense of values, then they really are lost. Yeah, I feel that that's kind of a bit of a metaphor for where we all are now, collectively, um, even if it's not by individually. But I mean, if we're, you know, the United States has lost its moorings as well. We were talking a little bit about this before. You, you, I mean, you're a very distinguished, not only scholar of Russia, but a student of international affairs. And yet what's so striking about this book is, you know, where does it end up? It's all about domestic politics and not even politics, really, so much as um, society and and culture. And uh, I tend to agree with you that, the, you know, we, we desperately need a to rebuild ourselves uh, in that way and in multiple dimensions. But I I guess I wonder, well, what happens if the United States does that, becomes extremely inwardly focused and maybe straightens itself out in a decade or two? Uh, what will have happened to the world outside? Or can we continue to play this the role that we have played in the world for well over half a century even while we fix the things that need to be fixed? I think we have to try to do both together because, look, the rest of the world, particularly with COVID, the pandemic, and all of the impacts of climate change is in the same position. And people are looking to see if the United States can get its act together. You know, all the way along um, in the United States' long history, and as it's laid out into the, the Constitution, there's this desire to create an ever more perfect union, but recognising the fact that we've got a lot of problems that we need to solve and to uh, to be able to fix uh, and, you know, uh, systems and institutions that all need uh, periodic renewal and reviving. And we're in um, one of those periods now for sure. And I think, you know, the eyes of the world are upon us to see how can we, can we do this? Can we really overcome our inner demons? And can we build something new? Can we... Uh, basically 
as we've done many times before, come out of this really difficult period. And if we can, I think a lot of other countries think they can do the same. So, I mean, I think it's an imperative that we do these two things together. Now, that's going to, of course, be pretty difficult. And, you know, I'm I'm always an optimist about the United States because in all the time that I've been here, I've seen lots of reasons to be optimistic. But I am also, you know, deeply worried about the history of other countries that I've seen where there's less room for optimism. And that's where, I, the, you know, the comparative aspect uh, does uh, does come in. And why I picked the United Kingdom and Russia actually very specifically, you know, for the purposes of the book. Yeah, I want to pursue that with you if we could for a moment, Fiona. I mean, one of the things that uh, you do so well in the book is to put uh, this problem of uh, populist authoritarianism in a, a, a international uh, context. You talk about uh, Viktor Orban and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, someone I know uh, pretty well from my time as ambassador to Turkey. And so uh, I'd like you to talk about that a little bit because you lay a great deal of emphasis in the book on uh, the economic dislocation from the uh, post-industrial uh, situation of the three countries you look at most closely. Your former colleague at, at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Pippa Norris and Ron Engelhardt, have looked at this as well, in particularly at Brexit and Trump, and they lay much more of this uh, at the door of uh, what they call cultural issues, cultural backlash, particularly to immigration. Uh, now, you talk about immigration as well and, and diversity being a part of this and, and also the uh, increase uh, of women in the workforce, which has uh, created global dislocation. What's going on here? I mean, is it really just a difference of emphasis, which you put more on the economic side than the cultural? Or how, how do you kind of parse that? I think it's a difference of emphasis and also of perspective. I mean, you know, with all due respect to Pippa and Ron, they're coming looking at this from the top down. And, you know, where you'd see the high culture or low culture, you know, depending on their perspective, manifesting itself. I started off at the bottom, at the bottom of the economic ladder. And, you know, the doorway to culture is education um, in terms of the acquisition of higher culture. I mean, if you just find culture, not just in terms of language um, and shared language um, and a sort of shared life, but a sort of shared history and then shared values, things that you add on top of that, a lot of that comes through education. Because, you know, mass education, public education in any country is a, is a sort of a process of a culturalization, right? And what's the big dividing line in the United States right now about where you, how you vote and how you see the world? It's on whether you've got any kind of further education beyond high school or not. And, you know, uh, and who are the people who tend not to have um, an education after high school? Well, they're usually working class, you know, blue collar, you know, from families long, um, you know, standing. So I am the first in my family, my immediate family, to go to university. I'm also the first in my family to go to school um, beyond 16. My my dad left at 14 to go down the mines. My grandfather before that at 13. My great-grandfather at 12. You know, you can see there's actually a pattern of increase here, fortunately, of kind of exposure to education. But in the United Kingdom, education for a sort of select few was the door to a different economic bracket, socioeconomic bracket, not just a different cultural bracket. So in the old education system of my... Um, uh, parents and uh, grandparents, uh, there was a bifurcated educational system in the UK uh, with grammar schools and then what were then secondary modern or vocational schools. And people were selected at, at age 11. And at age 11, um, it didn't matter what your background was, you'd sit this exam the 11 plus. And if you passed the 11 plus and did really well, a handful, you know, maybe two or three 
boys and two or three girls from each school would get a chance to go to a grammar school where all of their expenses would be paid for an education that would put them on um, uh, the track to be a white-collar professional or maybe a teacher, you know, something like this, and off, often an academic trap, uh, academic track uh, perhaps to university, uh, you know, law, doctors, you know, you name it. And it was that kind of door of education that opened it up. But there was, you know, a socioeconomic dimension to all of this because the people who didn't pass the 11 plus, whose family were wealthy from you know, a different socioeconomic background, they could pay for their kids to go to the grammar school. If he paid grammar schools, I'll go to private schools. And, the, you know, the rest, like my family, who you know, didn't, weren't in that top two or three um, from, you know, their, uh, their classes in elementary school, didn't go on like that. So I've always seen right from the very beginning, I mean, the education system changed as I joined it. There was these comprehensive schools that were meant to, you know, kind of give uh, an opportunity to everyone, not select everyone off at age 11. Uh, but uh, there were still private schools, there were still fee-paying grammar schools, and there was still, you know, kind of education was tied to your ability to pay. Uh, but education was very much the door. And in the North, uh, to, a, to a different life, uh, to a different culture, different perspective of culture. And so an awful lot of people now, when you look at all the places in the United Kingdom that have followed the same voting patterns as the United States, people say it's culture and values. But if you actually look at educational attainment, it's exactly the same. Kind of culture and values become a kind of a proxy for low educational attainment. So there is a, you know, a town um, near my town, which in fact the town where my grandmother was born in Hartlepool, in um, County Durham, it's a seaside town, had a big port and uh, a big, you know, kind of a whole series of heavy industry there at one point that's all closed down. And Hartlepool has really low educational attainment. But when people were doing surveys as to why did they vote for Brexit and why did they then vote for the Tory party, a little bit similar to you know voting for Trump and the Republicans, people were saying it was all culture and values, but it's all tied into educational attainment and socioeconomic levels. So I think this is, I think this is kind of more of a, an issue of emphasis and people not realising how the two things are tied together. And certainly in the case of Putin and Russia, you see the ties very, very clearly because um, you know Putin plays with all of these kind of cultural issues along with the socioeconomic issues simultaneously. And Trump did the same. Trump has honed in on white working class voters predominantly, not exclusively, of course, because, I mean, we have to be careful about being too reductionist about this. Also people who emphasise evangelical, non-denominational, you know, Protestant uh, Christian values and bundled it all together saying that, you know, not only are your jobs being taken away by immigrants, uh, but also your values and cultures are being threatened by immigrants plus all of these other people. We're seeing the same, you know, phenomenon in um, uh, the UK as well. And I describe in the book how at different points in UK history, race and immigration have also been used after World War One and after World War Two, in fact, to deliberately... Um, stave off demands from British labour and labour unions, you know, for increased pay after each of the, these wartime uh, scenarios and, uh, you know, better access to jobs. And then people are pitted against immigrants you know, who were actually brought in <laughs> by uh, British industry, particularly after World War One, to sort of fill in for labour shortages. And so, I mean, there's direct empirical evidence of, you know, kind of all of these things kind of being distorted and lumped together, tied in with, you know, economic issues. Okay, so um, Fiona, the question I'd like to put to you is this. Uh, on the one hand, I completely see the force of your argument about the impact of deindustrialization, uh, immigration, and 
a kind of general dislocation. But I think all of us know, I mean, I certainly do, people who are very highly educated, who've fallen down some of these rabbit holes. Um, and I've one uh, one friend, for example, who has a PhD, has an extremely well-paying, very secure job, who simply refuses to believe that the outcome of the 2020 election was a win for Joe Biden. And, you know, I could go through all the court cases with him and the investigations by Republicans, and he's still not convinced. And it it does seem to me that there are, there's some other element out there which explains the, on the one hand, the willingness to believe crazy conspiracy theories uh, like QAnon or things of that nature, and at the other, on the other hand, a kind of almost paranoid suspicion which is simply not susceptible to rational argument based on evidence. So yes, unfortunately, the mistrust of government is long-standing here in the United States. I mean, we all know that for decades of pupils, for example, that uh, most people have very little confidence in the federal government, uh, even if they might like some of the uh, uh, institutions of local and state government and some of the functions of government from the National Park Service to you know, the Postal Service and things like this. But when it comes to the federal government... Um, Nobody seems to be a major fan, but I, uh, you know, I don't think that explains everything uh, for sure. I do think there's uh, multiple elements at play here. Uh, after January 6th, there was a really interesting uh, op-ed, I think it was in the Washington Post, followed by a report from a Chicago-based professor, Robert Pape, P-A-P-E, who looked at the um, makeup of the people who participated in the January 6th uh, storming of Capitol Hill. Most of them were white. Uh, most of them were male. And most of them, uh, you know, overall were not working class, uh, you know, well, basically kind of blue collar. Many of them you know, had small businesses, you know, for example, and were, you know, relatively uh, well off. But they had had, um, many of them, some incidences of taking a blow during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And so, you know, at some point they hadn't felt whole, let's say, uh, particularly as a result of the government intervention afterwards when, you know, we know that um, there was a lot of bailing out of Wall Street but not of Main Street and they'd taken a hit so there might have been, you know, some difficulty to their finances. But they were also pretty much all from counties in the United States, counties rather than states, that were in a tipping point demographically. So people who felt that their position in society or that the faces of the people around them, you know, were under assault or changing. Uh, so basically, no longer feeling quite comfortable or at home in their own um, in their own neighbourhoods or own uh, uh, micro societies. So there's definitely this kind of element of dislocation and displacement that you see, you know, in other in other settings. So there was definitely kind of a, a factor that, uh, there that's gone into um, shaping people's thinking. Uh, also, of course, we have the impact of the internet that we're all struggling with. And I think that that's really uh, got much worse as a result of COVID. Uh, we're all spending, I mean, we're all speaking right now through Zoom, right? <laughs> we can see each other in our little boxes. But I have a lot of my own, you know, friends and relatives who've spent all kinds of time over the last uh, several um, months. I mean, particularly since lockdown, going all cut down rabbit holes on the internet. Uh, and they were going on those down on those rabbit holes beforehand. I personally never got into uh, 
Twitter, blogs, Facebook. I mean, only is using it as a sort of a tool of communications, you know, wishing distant family members a happy birthday because otherwise I didn't know how to find them. But never actually getting most of my information on news or corresponding with people in that way. And I do think an awful lot of people have become addicted to the way that they get information quickly at their fingertips, looking things up, and have been become much less discerning about the uh, about what they're reading and how they're sharing information with people and not stepping back. And, you know, I think we've uh, learned an awful lot from Francis Hogan, the whistleblower from Facebook, talking about algorithms um, uh, and the way that... Uh, People are pushed not just from Facebook, but another social media towards you know these so-called affinity groups, where they're just basically in self-reinforcing circles and their own bubbles with people who think like them and who are outraged by the same things and uh, you know interested in the same topics, and they're just kind of constantly sending information around. And our politics and society overall uh, are like that too. I mean, I, I would kind of argue that Facebook is imitating <laughs> real life, right? It's artificial intelligence. The algorithms are just kind of picking up on things in the, in the broader circles. People now identifying themselves in a certain way, only wanting to hang out and speak to people who are like them, think like them, look like them. I, I mean, th- this is the problem that we have. We've we've lost that kind of sense of mixing that American society had before. One of my colleagues at Brookings, William Frey, is a demographer. Um, has done this incredible set of interactive maps looking at demographic changes in um, the United States. I do think that plays you know, quite a role in here that there are many of us who live in these multicultural, multi-ethnic pockets, you know, more prosperous they tend to be, you know, than others, not just urban areas, but some, you know, semi-rural areas as well, where we have a very diverse uh, set of people around us with diverse views. And there are others who don't, you know, kind of by accidents of geography, uh, but then sort of self-reinforcing mechanisms. And uh, William Frey is also showing that Americans are less mobile now than they were at any time since 1947. So we're not on the move. We're not out there. And COVID has, of course, exacerbated this, out meeting other people, getting out from you know behind our computers and Zoom to meet people, to do things together with people. And I'm sure this is just going to get reinforced over time, you know, uh, as telework has been accelerated by the pandemic. So I don't think this is going to get any easier uh, or um uh, you know, any better over for the foreseeable future. It's going to take action. You know, how are we going to, not just you, Elliot, you know, sitting down with your friend and colleague and just going through all the kind of facts, but how do we get people, you know, back physically together, working with people and seeing a shared interest and then being able to exchange views that are not in, you know, this atmosphere of, uh, you know, you being able to pick and choose what you hear and, uh, you know, what you will send on to others. We could go on, I think, with you for hours, Fiona. Um, sadly, I think we're coming to the end of our time, but you've given us uh, a lot to think about uh, in your last comment. I think uh, that's uh, the role of Facebook in promoting the kind of authoritarian and populist regimes that we've been talking about today, something I think Elliot and I are going to want to explore in future uh, episodes of Shield of the Republic. But for today, I want to thank you for taking the time to join with us. The book is... There is Nothing For You Here by our guest, Fiona Hill, just been published by Mariner Books. Uh, I think anyone who is interested in the state of the world should uh, should read it. And, and uh, very hearty thanks to, to you for, for joining us. Elliot? Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs>